Well, this is a uh, program that I'm sure you don't want to uh, to miss and listening to because we have a vice president for education and uh, workforce, uh, Cheryl Oldman. Oldham uh, is the U.S. Chamber. It's it's a mammoth job, and I want her to talk about all the things that she's doing, but. Uh, uh, I've attended several of her programs over the last couple of years and, and workforce related, and they are very inspiring and very, uh, you know, really needing to scratch my head and say, hmm, maybe that would work. Maybe that's, that's something we should talk about today. So welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for those kind words about our programs. We hope we do something that makes people think and gives them some good information and add some value. You know, um, on the website, on it's hard to find the 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 web uh, the website the videos that are your programs on the website. And I saved it so I could pick it up yeah. very easily, and I've lost it. So if I have to go to the web website, we will take some time to do that. But uh, for now, we will continue with our conversation. There's so many things I want to talk to you about because you had said, and and, and although I don't have any. Children of your age, they you have two young boys, yep. and they are, you know, you are worried about the future, what the mm-hmm. future holds for them, and getting the right education, the right skills, and and they obviously are children that have a lot of advantages over other people, but but still enough to work for us to worry about. So what do you worry about with your kids? Absolutely. I think about it all the time because I feel like I'm somebody who spends a little bit of time in this space, um, both on the education side and on the workforce training side. And sure, I think about it all the time. I have a, uh, as I was telling you, a 15-year-old, he's about to turn 16 and he's entering his junior year in high school. And, you know, he doesn't, know what he wants to be he doesn't necessarily know what he wants to do which is completely understandable and um normal for a kid his age but um yeah just thinking about is he getting the education that he needs to lay that good foundation and and whatever path he chooses post high school will he get that training that he needs to um have all the opportunity that yeah. we want for our kids but we want for all kids and yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it it was it was very uh, uh, acute for me when I was more in the um, uh, purely education space, and he was very little, and we were in zoned for a school district that was not uh, hadn't met its hadn't met its um, adequate yearly progress and no child left behind. This is you know, ten, a decade ago, and I was able because I knew something about the law. I was able to get him out of that school into another school, but it was hard, and I was intimidated by the process, and I didn't, you know, you have to navigate a lot, and they didn't make it easy, and I thought, so it's just one of those things where I always think, you know, I'm somebody that, as you said, I mean, I, I have some advantages over probably a lot of folks, and it's it's hard for any parent to navigate this. So anything we can do to make it easier, well, we uh, sure want to. This is very very uh, uh, exciting to hear you talk about that because you have to you have to everybody has to have empathy for the people who have to have children who have children and, and any who have to go through all this process of deciding and manipulating and coordinating and et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
We, and, we put a lot of trust in these yeah, systems. Yeah, that you do. And uh, so uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, in my family, my sister, ever since she was born, said, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. And so that was what she became, a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to be a princess, so... <laughs> I wasn't. You're like my ten year old. He's pretty much convinced he's going to the major leagues. So you know, I wasn't very successful at that. So, but the, but at that time they didn't. Even, you know, nobody even cared. You know, yeah. it's, it's just the way it was. So uh, so before we we talk about workforce and specifically, tell me a little bit about your background. You you were from Texas, right? Yes, I well originally from St. Louis, but I spent most of my sort of formative years in Texas, growing up in Texas and um, in the Dallas area. Um, I went to undergrad in Texas. I went to law school in Texas, and I um, eventually made my way to Washington, D.C., mostly by way of um, politics. I had gotten involved in President George W. Bush's first gubernatorial race for the governor, you know, for for uh, to be governor of Texas in 1994. And he wasn't supposed to win, but he did win. And when he won, I decided I wanted to come to D.C. and I wanted to work for him in the Washington, D.C. office. And so I did that and I worked for him there. And then he became president and I got to work for him there um, in the White House for a couple of years. And then the bulk of the time in the Department of Education um, and then, but then save the yeah. save with the politics. Though. We're not yeah. going to be. This is not a political show, no. and so we won't talk about politics. Yeah. Although I'm going to bite my tongue. Yeah. Uh, but but you were with the uh, George Bush uh, governors and the White House mm-hmm. for about ten years. So I guess I started in 1994 on that race, and then he, you know, through to 2000 you know, nine when he got out of office. So I was my pretty much my entire career post law school was somehow tied to him and his service. And then when he left um, public life, um, I had had my second child, I stayed home for a little bit, I got back involved in um, uh, working for a friend and mentor of mine, Margaret Spellings, who had been Secretary of Education, and she had a relationship with the Chamber. That's how I found my way to the Chamber running the education and workforce work there. So you've always had a a drive or an interest in politics? No, I mean, that was sort of a, I sort of stumbled into it post-law school. I think it was a, it was a little bit of like, okay, I spent some time in law school, and now I'm not really sure that I want to practice law. Um, so I got involved in, (laughs) I got involved in his race kind of by accident and then sort of fell in love with it and thought at age, whatever I was, 25, 26 coming, why not make the leap, go where, you know, you get bit by the political bug, you come to DC. And so I've sort of packed up and moved up here without a job. And so I want to ask you this before we jump into the next period of your life. What is the one thing that you learned uh, from that first experience, the first years in, in political aura or political yeah. whatever it was? You know, this is the thing about, and, it, you know, for me, I felt really strongly about him as a leader. And I always felt proud to be associated with him as a leader, to work for him as president. 
Um, and that for me was really important when you're serving something mm-hmm, like exactly. that. You're in public service. You're doing, I really, like it was just a very easy decision for me to stay all those years, to be involved all those years. Like I really felt strongly about, you know, even if, I mean, everybody has, you know, probably, you know, you're never going to agree with 100% of of whatever um you know, serving in that uh, capacity, but I always knew that it was coming from a place of he was doing the right really? thing with the information available and and wanted the best for the country. And I always felt strongly about that. So it was for me, it was like I always, I knew for me that I would always need that if I was going to work for someone like that in that capacity, I would yeah, need yeah, that yeah. really strong feeling of like, and, um, or just feeling of like I trust, trust this person. person. Um, the other thing, just more practical about, you know, sort of first jobs and all of that, it's a workforce show, is the power of networks, really. And I talked to, spoke to some of our interns at the chamber recently, and we, um, and I said, there's just almost nothing more important when it comes to getting your job, getting your first job, getting your second job, getting, getting your 10th job, is these networks that you've established. And it's, um, Unfortunately, so many people in this country don't have a network like that that can help them navigate um, either their education, their training, or that job market. It's so important. But how do you get a network if you're just starting out? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's lots of, you know, your family can be a network. Um, where you went to school can be a network. Friends can be a network. I just say to you know young people who are sort of navigating all this is really keep up those relationships build those networks find those networks find those common ground i've been told by several people that the best network for somebody in school high Mm -hmm. school or college is an internship well we think so and we've Mm -hmm. built a pretty good one at the chamber and that's um and we recently actually established um, a new program at the chamber that's in partnership with Howard University, and it's all about really diversifying the the talent pipeline for associations. The chamber is an association. We have other associations that are members of the chamber, and we created a program where we have a relationship with Howard. We get um, a bunch of Howard University students to come to the chamber, um, also to work in other associations in town, and it really... Um, wonderful group of folks that wouldn't maybe not have found their way to the chamber um but for those circumstances and i but for that program and i think um you know they're getting to expand their network into the business community into the association world all of the people they got to work with and meet mm. and we have a very um pretty robust intern program at the yeah. chamber with lots of exposure to events and people yeah, the and chamber, speakers like one of the largest organizations nonprofit organizations of its kind um i don't know about nonprofits but i will say it is the largest um organization representing the inter- interests of business in the country okay. um it certainly is th- 3 million businesses um State and local chambers all across the country, American chambers abroad. Um, so it's, abroad, it's yep. so you've already talked about two careers that you've yeah. you've had. One is in politics and yeah. and being a political uh, and political uh, operative, if appointee, that's appointee, appointee, or what is it, a political appointee? appointee. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and the other being uh, in associations yeah. and, and et cetera. Yeah. And so, did you ever think you would be in associations when you were? In, no, in I don't fun? even thought. I'm not even sure. 
you know, I think about my son who's, you know, thinking about what comes after high school. And then I try to look back on my time and I, I think, did I have any clue what I wanted to do, what I was going to do? Certainly not. I majored in political science. I didn't really know what I wanted to do post undergrad. So I went to law school really for that yeah. reason, not knowing. Certainly yeah. a great experience and good foundation. But um, it was not a very intentional, you know, this yeah. is what I want to be. This is what I know. Um, well, you I, never practiced law. I didn't. And that is an interesting thing. As we jump into the second phase of your life, yeah. you uh, were, a, if you got, uh, let me get this straight. You were a an appointee as a, as a deputy secretary to this undersecretary. <laughs> the, 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 the titles in government are very is, uh, bizarre. Well, I worked for two years in the White House, um, both in personnel at the beginning oh, yeah, and then personnel. cabinet affairs. And then I moved over to the Department of Education, first as White House liaison. Then I ran the Secretary's Commission on the Future of Higher Education. You were the liaison for education? The White House liaison at the Department of Education. Oh, okay. It's a position that most departments have. Um, then I ran the Secretary's Commission on the Future of Higher Education. That was a about a one-year process. Um, and then after that, I worked for the Undersecretary. I was her Chief of Staff. I ultimately was Acting Assistant Secretary for Post-Secondary Education towards the end of the administration. And you do whatever anybody asks you to do, which ultimately generally means you have lots of different positions in yeah. lots of different places. It's and fun, and it's what great. did you, you learn a lot about edu- about yeah. the education. You wrote yeah. several papers. I wrote down yeah. uh, two papers that you wrote. One was about apprenticeships, uh, bipartisan coalition uh, for reintroducing college transparency act, mm-hmm. which was what? Um, so... I think those were two different. Were those two different and things? And then the one was reinventing apprenticeships. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, the College Transparency Act. This is one of those things. This actually goes back to my time at the Department of Education and the Commission on the Future of Higher Education. You know, one of these things about post-secondary education is we don't actually have a lot of great outcome data uh, associated with post-secondary education. We're very data rich in the K through twelve space, but in the higher education space, we are not. Uh, that is not necessarily the case. And so we were advocating for more transparency in post-secondary education, more um, at the program level. So if you think about, you know, you can get some data about maybe completion rates or demographic data, um, maybe even some data into labor markets, although that's very hard to, to come by at, say, the institution level. Oftentimes, though, you cannot get that program-level data, so it matters not just that you went to the University of Texas at Austin. It's going to matter for your career what you studied while you were there, right? And oftentimes, we don't get that granular-level data so that the consumer can make better choices about this major investment in post-secondary education that they're about to make. So if you can have that program-level data, you can hopefully, as a consumer, make some decisions about, hey, I... think that I'm interested in studying this, but if I look at the data, I see that, you know, studying anthropology, don't get mad at me, anthropologists, whatever, yeah, studying political science at Texas Christian University, where I went, does not lead you to great 
you know, labor market outcomes one years, five years, 10 years out, maybe that would have influenced my decision about where to go. I'm making this up about the institutions and the data. Um, But it's one of those. So we have um, long advocated for that at, at the chamber as well, just wanting people to have better information when they're making these really critical very large investments of money and time um, to know to we're sort of agnostic. You make the decisions that you make, but you should have that that level of information. So it's just one of those things that's been sort of, you know, um, there's been concerns raised about privacy, getting sort of student level data um, to be able to look at outcomes like that. Um, and so Congress is actually, you know, considering that now as they wrestle with Higher Education Act reauthorization. I think that's that's very important. And I know that there are a lot of organizations who are Mm -hmm. on the bandwagon. They they're uh, arguing for or advocating for uh, getting more data. Mm -hmm. Uh, And interestingly enough, I went to uh, hear a program where they were using Bitcoin technology in order to maintain the privacy of the individual by but by also by getting the data that they need to make yeah. other yeah. it's amazing that's one way that technology is being used it's crazy and we're doing a lot in that space on the workforce side that I'm sure we'll we'll have time to talk about but the importance of data and technology in sort mm-hmm. of the broader talent marketplace and making sure that we have that infrastructure to support the kinds of things that we need to make that talent marketplace work really well. It's amazing to hear it from a person who is involved in workforce Mm -hmm. and education. It's it's very, uh, very timely and very important. So uh, so you 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 your second second half of your workspace has been in in working for the government Mm and politics Mm -hmm. and becoming knowledgeable about the ebb and flow of workforce, yeah. workforce issues. Right. So before I go to the third step, which is now, yep. uh, what did you learn from, from your work in, in politics and in White House? And I mean, White House is a wonderful experience. I get asked it a lot. Would you, you know, tell me about your experience at the White House or, you know, would you recommend working at the White House? It's certainly a high-intensity place, but um, my experience was incredibly positive with a lot of amazingly smart I mean just such smart people um and the experiences that you have the sort of witness to history that is working in the White House is phenomenal so I think you know anybody who gets that opportunity ought to jump at it and you know I was young and you know now looking back on it well young I was 30 maybe and um I certainly feel I probably didn't take I didn't appreciate as much as I should have now with like the yeah. history, but I was there in 9-11 and some really um, Were there in 9/11. crazy times and, you know, t- things that you will never forget. Um, and then, you know, the Department of Education, I think often about would I ever go back into a department? Um, I think that it's, you know, you really do have an opportunity to shape programs that impact people's everyday lives mm-hmm. and so I mean I think about this you know staff on the hill I never worked on the hill but I mean these are the people that are writing the laws that will impact all of us and it's um, an awesome responsibility, responsibility. Um, and so I think you know we all ought to take it 
really seriously. <laughs> yeah. And also, you don't have to be a political appointee no. to appreciate the, the ma magnitude of what you're doing. A public, um, public uh, employee uh, mm -hmm. is, in, I don't think they're worshipped enough. They do incredible amounts of work for a little bit of money. Yeah. And they yeah. also affect yeah. how... Every, how we live our lives. Oh, they really run these agencies. Are you kidding? I mean, so, they're there all the time. And amazing, amazing people that I got to work with there. So, and this is a government city. And so mm -hmm. it, when I moved here, it was almost all government. And now it is government and technology mostly. Yeah. And so it's it's a major, major difference. And, and, and so I... Yeah. I I, my mouth is open when I think about all the changes that are taking place. But as a result of these changes, we're getting a lot of good and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, movement to, to really find the answers to, to some serious problems. Now, back to workforce, it's a serious problem. Uh, do you think our, what do you think of the problems? What, if you were to say, ask, be asked, what is the workforce? Mm -hmm. development, first of all. What would you say? Well, you know, we were having a conversation in uh, in our uh, team the other day and sort of saying that we need to look expansively at this, at, at this idea of workforce. When we talk about workforce, we really need to consider it broadly and not consider it as, you know, just you know, post high school workforce training or post, you know, it really is for us, the entire talent pipeline is workforce, right? I mean, it starts at the earliest ages. I'm not saying that we, we start training babies, but the point is we start learning from the moment we're born. Our K through 12 system has a very important role to play here. If we think that we're going to tackle workforce challenges we have today and ignore everything that happens before high school, we're crazy. crazy. And so we can't just, everybody's very interested in having a workforce conversation right now. And I think they're tired of trying to think about how to fix K through 12 and so don't really want to have that one. But we cannot ignore that piece. And so it's all just so interconnected. We're all in our silos. We reauthorize things in our, you know, the legislation is in silos. The the departments are in silos. Um, it would be, if we really wanted to do something bold, I think we would try to think very innovatively about how to bring these things together and think about it holistically as a talent, as a, as a talent marketplace. Well, you know, the, they, we look at the problems as an outsider looking inside the house. And, and I see, you know, People talking about uh, lack of skills, mm -hmm. underskilled, mm -hmm. uh, that, and that sends from early ages, from, and also sends from your years in high school and and in college. You don't have the skills to do it. So, and we can go on and on and on. What do you see as besides the big picture of, of preparing people, uh, children, mm -hmm. from pre kindergarten or nursery school, on through the years mm -hmm. and today it's it's through life it's mm -hmm. it's always but what do you see as the the major issues that you're dealing with yeah. I mean one of the biggest for us really is that alignment right the alignment between what is taught either in education or training workforce training and what the what does the labor market look like 
What is the employer community looking for? What do the jobs look like? And I think we have ha- notorious, notoriously sort of put that on the supply side, right? We have put that on educators and workforce providers to figure out what it is they should be delivering. And we haven't focused enough on what exactly is um, the employer community looking for. And so that has been our approach at the chamber with our work through talent pipeline management and other initiatives is to say, the employer community plays a really important role here. And so we need to stop just saying we need more employer engagement. We need, you know, we need the business community to tell us what they want. We need the employer community needs to to come to the table having done their homework, which is our talent pipeline work, right? It's like, what are those critical positions that have gone left unfilled are going to impact your bottom line? You're not going to be able to compete. What are the competencies and credentials required to fill those jobs? Do the data analysis internally in your organization. Back map where you get your best talent and really treat your talent supply chain like you would any other supply Mm -hmm. chain. And then develop those relationships with all that data, data to inform those decisions mm-hmm. and go to those uh, to the supply side and work with them to build it. Um, I just think that that's it's a much more intentional way of looking at business education partnerships. It's going to yield better results. It's going to um, I mean, we've got evidence to show it. And so I think, you know. Again, what we've oftentimes done is the the education community or the, the post-secondary community, the workforce community has gone to the employer community and sort of invited them maybe to be on their advisory board or something. Mm-hmm. It's maybe one or two employers and you sort of check that employer engagement box, mm-hmm. but that is not going to really yield you the results that you need. Um, and so we just needed to do something differently. So I think that sort of alignment between what is taught in education and training classrooms and what the employer community needs is the biggest disconnect. And if we can fix that um, in a seamless way, then I think we've made real progress and we're working towards that. Yeah, It's hard yeah. work, though. This is hard work. This is not some fly-by-night, oh, no. flashy program that's going to, like you know, yield results tomorrow. This take this is a human problem. This takes humans doing different things differently. That's the talent pipeline management program. Mm-hmm. Management program. Mm-hmm. Do you want us to talk about that? Is that what you that's the program that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that was the program that's the talent mm-hmm. pipeline. Yeah. Um so so other is it's important to get the em- employers to buy into mm-hmm. this. But what if employers are so anxious to uh to have employees who have skills that they need at that moment mm-hmm. that they don't buy into planning. Right. And it changes so quickly as yeah. well. So how do you address that? Well, I think there's certainly, um, you know, there's a there's plenty of it. Let me be clear. Talent pipeline management isn't the only approach. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's other, you know, programs that are that are meeting employer needs. And there are. There's certainly lots of individual employer, you know, education and business partnerships that are building that, you know, sort of one-off pipeline for a particular company or an upskilling initiative where you can look at your internal 
um, you know, your existing incumbent workers and mm-hmm. say, how do we think about upskilling mm-hmm. um, and supporting them to get, you know, continuous training so that they're, you know, prepared for um, the next position or, you know, to promote and advance within the company. And so, um, you know, I don't think any approach is a quick fix, yeah. right? You're you always, you you've got it. I mean, you're never going to mm. be able to, you can't just say, okay, I've got, I've got a problem today and it's going to get fixed tomorrow. Like yeah. these, we've, we got to do the hard work. Yeah. It requires some planning and thought. You know, I I, was, I went to your program on Energy Innovates, mm-hmm. and that was a, a practical example of how employers and are working with the, with the workforce, the employees, yeah. and, and others to to create enough bodies, enough trained people mm-hmm. to to deal with the issues that they have to deal with. Yeah. And that was very impressive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. You hear this from the energy sector a lot. We have a, a really robust um, body of work with the energy sector up in Michigan. And r- real, I mean, it, I mean, it's fascinating to see, you know, sort of what it was like before TPM and then what it's like after. And w- before it was, you know, I've got 500 positions open. I've got, actually, that was more, maybe 100, 100 let's say 150 positions open. I get 5,000 resumes, only 50 are even remotely able to be interviewed and I can't, and I'm losing, I'm losing money every day that, that these positions aren't filled. They adopted our talent pipeline approach and, um, and they are, uh, they're cutting, they're cutting their costs, their onboarding costs, their time to productivity, time to full to productivity. Um, they're getting results quickly, but it's a huge energy sector is one that we see often in our work that's having a real, um, you know, acute issue with talent. What is the one thing that the United States can do to, to close the skill gap, to no matter what occupation they're in, no matter how they do it, what is what is the one thing that comes to mind that you can recommend that everybody has to be on board with? Is there oh boy, that's a loaded question. I Unf- end with yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, I think if we think there's one thing, then we don't. I'm not saying this about you, but I think if we think there's no, one thing, <laughs> we don't appreciate the enormity, the enormity of the problem and all of the various sort of pieces that play a part, right? If we say there's one thing, then we're probably thinking there's not, if there's one thing in the, you know, that workforce development providers could do, right? Then I'm ignoring the entire K through 12 system and I'm ignoring the barriers to work, right? Like we have a, we have a real issue with more positions than we have people in this country. Mm. And there's lots of, re- like, we got to get everybody off the bench. And so mm. that means the formerly incarcerated we need to think about, we need to think about women and why they're not in some places in the workforce. And maybe that's childcare and there's transportation issues. I mean, there's a lot there. And so I know there's a lot of really smart people thinking about, you know, national workforce strategies and, you know, what's the federal government's role, what the state government role. We think often mostly about what is the employer community's role. And we think, you know, from our little corner of the world, we think it's really, really important. I can't tell you how many conversations I'm in 
that want to have a conversation about workforce or career readiness or, you know, something. And and I'm the only person there that is there to represent the business community. And so I don't know how you have these conversations without business front and center. I belong to several groups and there are lots of employers there. Good. And they're, uh, you know, and they're attempting to to merge their interests in mm-hmm. in there in fact there's an apprenticeship uh, program uh, a blue a blue apprenticeship i think it's mm-hmm. called in in maryland in october so it's okay. for those who have uh, lower skilled non-skilled yeah there's lots of technical jobs for them yeah and they don't even know about them yeah. but i think that i would love it, to rename that too yeah low skilled middle skilled i keep thinking like who's who's um you know, like, who's aiming for that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, we need to, like, give it a better name. Yeah, well, you, know? you can come up with it. I'll come up with me, that, and we'll talk and about, it. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, we're, I'm just, I'm just thinking what, parents I'm are a big here. issue, especially when you think about kids and, and exposure to all the careers. And if it's not, not everybody needs the traditional four-year liberal arts degree but approach. But would you ha- would you be comfortable having your your child, your your younger boy, mm-hmm. go uh, uh, into a car you know car repair? You know, I would because I have seen this in they person. Money, I've seen the training facilities in person yeah. and in real life, and have have witnessed it, and it's pretty phenomenal and this is not that's why I say we got to change the name this is not grease monkey stuff this is not right like this is your mother's this is high this high tech and I and I think maybe I'm even more open to it now that I have an almost 16 year old because I'm dealing with the whole like what do I want to be and if he came to me with a passion and said, I want to be in construction. I want to be in mechanic. I want to be, I I would want to do whatever I could to support it. I would say you need some training post high school. High school is not enough. That's not going to do it's it. You got to, um, you got to do something. Right. So I think that in parents, you have to engage parents yeah. in this situation. It's hard. Yeah. And in Washington area, DMV, you know, every child is going to be a president of the United States. So one hundred percent. I mean, it's def- that's definitely. I mean, everybody wants you want the best for your child. Yeah. You want the most opportunity, and certainly the research suggests that over a lifetime, a four-year degree or you know post-secondary education, higher education, sort of the traditional route, leads to better sort of financial outcomes. I think you know on average. I believe that for every parent uh, who is who is listening to our program. And every child who hasn't made a decision and every uh, adult who is entering the workforce or mm-hmm. in the workforce, there are lots of opportunities to expand your knowledge of, of occupations mm-hmm. and jobs so that you don't have to be asking yourself, did I make the right choice? Yeah. And the internships, apprenticeships, uh, trailing somebody yeah. in the day when they're working, yeah. there are lots of things that you can do to become knowledgeable about a job, and then the job changes. And so you would ask initially, uh, what do you do to, you know, to, to adapt, to adjust to a changing work environment? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I really think that you, you have to have the, uh, the ability to learn. You have to be willing to learn. Mm-hmm. And so the employers can come to the table with 
new skills and, mm-hmm. and new new opportunities if you're willing to, to yep. take them. I thank you for being here. Thank this you. This is so interesting. This I could go on. This is fun. We should do it again.